Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. I had a wonderful deep dive conversation with Sean Murphy, Zen master, author, and SDI coordinating council member. His story is really fascinating, and there's a lot of wisdom to glean from his 30 plus years of meditation practice. My biggest question to him about all that meditation is, what were the results? See, we have this understanding that meditation is about mindfulness, being aware of ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, and the present moment. But listening to Sean, it's clear that there is so much more than that. Mindfulness, as I learned from Sean, is just the first fruits of meditation. Um, Well, Sean, thanks for your time today. I have enjoyed getting to know you through your work on the Coordinating Council for SDI, Uh, but maybe uh, give us a little introduction about yourself and the work you do, where you're located, uh, kind of a brief, a brief picture, if you will. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I'm uh, in Taos, New Mexico, and I've been a practitioner of Zen meditation for, for something like 33 years now. Um, and I was I was brought to it uh, when uh, I was going through a lot of difficulty, and uh, you know, it's the I started reading spiritual texts to kind of try and find out why life is like, and Zen made the greatest sense. Uh, I happened to be staying in a, uh, a friend's house. I was trying to write a book about um, this kind of crazy adventure we just had. In 1986, I walked across the country with a group called the Great Peace March yeah. for Nuclear Disarmament. And I was trying to write a book about it in the end, unsuccessfully. Um, But uh, I was staying in my friend's parents' house. He was working on a project. I was working on a project. And um, I got really sick that winter, and I turned 30. And, of course, I thought my life was over. You know, (laughs) I had to write this book, and it wasn't going well. And uh, my friend was a – his father was a well-known professor of religion and philosophy – and he led a uh, religious studies circle of scholars at Columbia University. His name was uh, Dr. Henry Leroy Finch. And um, he was friends with Joseph Campbell, people like that. And, um, and he had every sacred text in the world in his house. <laughs> and so I just kind of started reading through. And when I hit Zen, it just kind of went bingo. You know, this is something I should investigate. So. Um, that was in New Rochelle, New York, uh, where I was staying for that winter. And I moved back to California, where I'd been before the Peace March. And uh, I found myself a Zen teacher as soon as I could. Um, in those days, of course, 1987, um, there was no internet. So I just looked in the phone, in the Los Angeles phone book under Z. And, uh, <laughs> and there it was, Zen Center of Los Angeles. Um, so I was living in Santa Barbara, but I knew I, I knew there was a Zen center in, in in Los Angeles. So I started doing formal Zen training at that time. Can you talk about what it was about discovering Zen that resonated with you 
Mm. Yeah, I uh, I was in college in the 1970s in in California, and uh, I didn't quite realize at the time there were just all these ideas kicking around. I didn't realize how many of them came from Eastern traditions. There was, uh, you know, this notion of um, being in the present moment and centering oneself in the present moment that was just kind of kicking around the counterculture. Mm. And uh, these the uh, uh, interest in things like yoga and meditation, which I was already experimenting with. And uh, there was a general interest in consciousness. Um, and in practicing awareness and in practicing uh, love and compassion and things like that. And, and uh, when I encountered Buddhism, I just kind of, there was a sense of recognition. Um, some of these things I've been putting into practice already, like um, questioning what I thought, questioning my own ideas and preconceptions, being in the present moment, uh, uh, working towards being non-judgmental, um, things like that. And uh, when I when I started reading about Buddhism in general and about Zen in particular, I, I, it just kind of clicked that, uh, like I say, it felt it felt familiar. It just felt right. And like many other people of my of that generation, I was uh, I felt disillusioned with traditional religion. I was raised without any religious background but um you know as i as i came into especially into my later 20s and started to be aware of how much suffering and trouble there was in the world i felt a need for something that gave my life meaning and um you know i've i've since looked into the other mystic traditions and have gained a deep respect for the uh, mystic traditions in Christianity, for instance. But at that time, that's not what I was getting from mainstream culture. And so um, it felt like that was not a place to look, but the Eastern traditions, you know, also we were rebellious in that era. And so of course we wanted to find something different, something that our parents weren't doing, you know, something that the, the mainstream wasn't doing. And, um, Fortunately, these practices of meditation, yoga, and such were um, were available uh, in a way they hadn't been even 20 years before. Well, now it's, uh, is it four? Let's see, 87, 97, 2007, 2007 uh, 30 30 plus, plus years yeah, yeah. Uh, of practicing. And I wonder, um, and maybe this is, again, too broad a stroke to make, but... How have you how have you changed in in that time through these practices? Uh, how how do you understand consciousness? How do you understand the self? How do you understand yeah. being non judgmental? Uh, being yeah. in present moments. Yeah, I mean those were kind of entry points for me. Uh, like I say, we've been practicing. I've kind of been practicing them already. Those were philosophies of the counterculture, and I took them seriously. Um, but other things uh, that I didn't quite expect uh, were maybe the first immediate uh, benefits from from practice for me. Um, I was uh, I experienced a lot of depression and anxiety in my twenties and thirties, and uh, I started 
practice a seriously when I was three, and it, it took a few years, but I'd say by the time I was in my late 30s, certainly in my 40s, um, anxiety and depression had ceased to be an issue for me. Um, I learned how they functioned in the human mind, and uh, the way they functioned for me and the way they functioned for many people is... Um, the kind of physiological experience of feeling low emotionally or feeling anxious emotionally is going to happen to anyone. But what tends to happen is, uh, and you learn this from sitting in meditation and seeing what your mind does, um, the mind wants to ascribe meaning to it. It's, it's, uh, so it wants to build a story about it. So if you're feeling a little bit low one, one day when you wake up in the morning, for instance, like I say, this happens probably to everyone, the mind would like to apply a story to it. Um, you know, something like, oh, I gotta go to work again. Oh, I'm tired, oh, you know, geez, this, why, what's the whole point? This is just a rat race, am I just living to work? Hmm. You know, the next, if you let that story build, the next day you're waking worse and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The third day you wake up feeling worse. It takes about a week and you're basically suicidal, right? Because the hmm. story gets worse every day. Um, same thing happens with anxiety. They, that turns into a story that builds and builds. And uh, just the simple act of letting go of our thinking mind and returning to the present moment gives us an outside view on the thinking mind. We understand that we're not the same thing as our thoughts. And if we haven't done something, some kind of practice or psychotherapy or uh, religious work, the, norm, the human norm is to believe what we think and to take it as though it was reality. And when you start to realize that you're reality and you start to get some distance on them, then you're able increasingly through this the simple practice of letting go of the thinking mind and returning to direct experience in, in meditative or any kind of contemplative practice requires this. It, it means that the thoughts and the stories which compose our condition, our conditioned mind, um, they start to lose their grip on us. They don't have the same power. When a negative story starts to build, it becomes possible to examine it ask ourselves how true it is and release it. And which means if we wake up one morning and we feel low, well, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, this normal human experience of having moments of uh, low emotion or a moment of anxiety doesn't have to build into something larger that spirals and spirals until it's out of control. An enormous thing for me to be free of worry, anxiety. It's, it's, the one of the basic functions of the tool of meditation and be the reduction of suffering and it has certainly worked for me yeah. sometimes say it gave me the reins of my life it told me how to do something about my mind and emotions which prior to that had felt like they had a life of their own and they were not i had no influence over them hmm. are you you give a pretty compelling uh, a lot of compelling reasons to to do meditation. So do you understand mindfulness and meditation as, as um, what I'm hearing from you is that they, they go hand in hand, that it's through meditation 
that you become mindful. And by mindful, I think what I hear from you is a sense that it's not like you are emptying your mind or turning it off. It's simply that you are able to kind of uh, set aside, you know, a particular emotion or thought and not let it sort of wrap itself around you or that you, you are not that thought or you are not that emotion. You are having that emotion and that by doing so, you're able to kind of disarm it as it were. Does that, does that sound accurate? Yes. That, of course, we're talking fundamentally about, at this point, about the reduction of suffering and the psychological meditation, which are some of the first fruits of meditation if we approach it in the, in the correct way. Actually, the first fruits just to become calmer and more clear-headed. But this is kind of the secondary way that we can work with our conditioning. Um, yeah, mindfulness is the portable version of meditation and meditation in and of itself won't necessarily have the kind of um, results that I'm speaking of when I'm talking about reduction of anxiety or depression or in general our attachment to negative emotions and thoughts. Um, we have to actually practice mindfulness because we have to be willing, for instance, to uh, tussle with worried thoughts or uh, or depressive thoughts uh, and be willing to let them go, not only when we're sitting in meditation, but during our daily life. And that's mm. those are called mindfulness of mind practices in Buddhism. And uh, they're very transformative. Um, and we can't go very far into the spiritual dimension of meditation if we are beset with... Um, with regrets and worries and anxieties and depressive and negative thoughts and feelings that that stuff needs to be in some way processed and that load needs to be lightened for most people in order to be able to see clearly enough to to start to appreciate the spiritual dimensions of meditation which of course is finally what what the practice is for um, but we have to be willing to take that into daily life uh, and and really practice it and be willing to let go of the certain thoughts again and again. And to be able to weigh when uh, thoughts are like tools. So uh, to be able to build either of the structures that we're sitting in or to be able to build the audio system that's recording this conversation, obviously that requires thought. It requires learning from the past, projecting into the future, making plans, and, and thinking. And uh, the thinking mind is very, very good for that, for building things, for mechanics. It's not so good. You know, Einstein had a brilliant thinking mind, but did that help him in dealing with his wife? Probably not. It's the wrong tool for the job. It's like, you're, it's like your tire goes flat on the highway and you look in the trunk and all you have is a Phillips head screwdriver. Phillips said screwdriver is a great tool, but it's not going to help you when it comes to changing your tire. So we start to, our actual thinking mind becomes more effective and clearer because it's not all over the place and unfocused and um, uh, trying to figure out things that can't be figured out, like love, like the meaning of life. Those things have to be experienced to be understood.
Sean Murphy teaches meditation, creative writing, and literature for University of New Mexico Taos, and has taught and presented on Zen practice and meditation for over 20 years. Sean is the recipient of a 2018 National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in Creative Writing and is a fully sanctioned Zen teacher in the American White Plum lineage. He is the founder of the Sage Institute for Creativity, Consciousness, and Environment, and he also serves on SDI's Coordinating Council. You can learn more about Sean's work at his personal website, murphyzen.com and sagetaus.com. Support for this podcast comes from SDI Press, announcing its newly published book, Spiritual Direction Supervision, Principles, Practices, and Storytelling by Lucy Abbott Tucker, an innovative full-color workbook designed to support the care and growth of your spiritual companionship practice, representing the best thinking of master teacher Lucy Abbott Tucker. We invite you to explore her principles, practices, and stories as you deepen your own approach to spiritual direction companionship, and the supervision process. Learn more at sdistore.org. Can you talk a little bit about the spiritual side of meditation that you touched on? Yeah. um, So these kinds of um, mental and emotional afflictions that I was speaking of, depression, anxiety, which are epidemic proportions. I, I, uh, yeah. I teach meditation at University of New Mexico House and, and also through my own organization, Sage Institute. And it's taught in what we call a secular context, which means um, which means with none of the trappings that might go with Zen Buddhism, um, you know, none of the ritual or or or, uh, or that sort of thing that that is is part of the practice as it came from the East. But um, so we just go directly to meditation and mindfulness. Um, and I find my students are, um, are just much more so than in my generation in the 70s and, and early 80s uh, when I was in my first college years. Um, they're just, current students are just swamped with anxiety and depression. Um, so, so that's where we start because if that's not, if we can't clear that, some of that out of the way then, then um, it's very hard to appreciate the spiritual side because anxiety and depression have to do with the ego. They have to do with depression has to do with the, you know, to me it always had to do with the, um, with the ego worrying about what's happening to it or what's the meaning of life for me or why does life have to be so difficult definitely for everybody, but especially for me, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, you know, tussling with the human condition. Yeah. Um, and, uh, anxiety of course is basically fear of how am I taking care of me? What's going to happen to me? This attachment to this notion of me is what keeps us from experiencing the spiritual dimension of life. Um, the spiritual dimension of life is about unity. It's about the spiritual dimension of life is about our connection to other human beings, to the earth, to the ecosystems, to animals, to all living things. And um, 
And we are far more connected than we are separate, although it doesn't seem that way to us because we have these separate bodies and these apparently separate minds and hearts that we feel we need to take care of. And we do, to some extent, need to take care of them. But when we become too fastened on, on me, taking care of me, we lose sight of the fact that we came from the universe. We're going back to the universe. We're made of elements that came from the universe. We have to take in food, liquid, air from our environment and we excrete back out into our environment. We're not separate from it at all in the slightest. Um, but having that sense of unity be a primary experience as opposed to the sense of being a threat and separate self being our primary experience. That's, that's the spiritual dimension of life. I mean, if anybody doubts that they're, they're in, completely integrally connected to the universe, try to remove yourself from your environment. It can't be done. Just because we're portable and we can move around in our environment, we seem to think that we're independent. But if we look at it closely, we really aren't. We're completely dependent on our environment. In fact, we're completely dependent on other people. How many of us could go out into the woods and survive for a year without the help of anyone else? Or survive just in our normal everyday circumstances. You know, yeah. We go yeah. to the grocery store and we buy, you know, somebody stocked those shelves and somebody supplied those goods and somebody grew that food. <laughs> yeah. And my, um, especially the kind of current young generation of students in their, I got a lot of students in their early 20s, not so many who are 18, 19, but um, mm -hmm. um, the students at University of New Mexico Taos tend to be. A little older, but um, a lot of them are um, are quite feel quite negative and insecure about human beings. They look around, they look at the news and all the horrible stuff that happens, and they feel they start to feel more and more negative about human life and think more and more negatively. This is something I point out to them all the time. Think of how, on an average day, how many acts of cooperation do you experience, and how many acts of uh, aggression or violence to your experience. Mm. And invariably, just as you were saying, you know, if they stop at the grocery store, it's, you know, how many instances of cooperation are involved just in being in the grocery store? You know, people who grew the food, transported it, stocked the shelves, started the company that, that carries the food, the people who printed the money we use or the credit card or, you know, the other people in line, the cashiers, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. That's all cooperation. You know, actually, aggression and violence isn't the norm. It's not the human norm. It's, uh, it stands out as news because it's not the usual experience and because it's dangerous and upsetting and for all those reasons. But I, if you really look at the web of cooperation that we all live entirely embedded in, the clothes we wear, the place we live, our furniture, everything was provided to us by others. And, uh, um, you know, or I'll just point to the class. I'll say, in this classroom today, how many people stole something from someone else, hit someone else, insulted them? You know, it's, in general, the classes are very cooperative endeavors. Everybody's very, very cooperative and nice. So it's a little eye-opening to people that, 
our ideas about things and about life can so condition the way we feel and, um, you know, can make of life um, something that's filled with suffering or something that is, uh, has a lot more uh, joy, connection, and compassion. And that side of things, the connection, the compassion is, is the spiritual side. Mm. That's uh, some really beautiful insights. Um, just the, the sense of awareness, the awareness of interconnection that needs to be practiced, right? Mm, it's one thing right. to think it, to be like, oh yeah, that's, that makes sense as a concept in my mind. But to right. actually go out and see it and experience it and to be mindful of those experiences. Um, like you yeah. just said, it's very simple. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, in a, in a way it's obvious. Isn't it funny though? But we all have the filters of our own preconceptions, our own conditioning yeah. that, that can prevent us from seeing uh, really how wonderful this wonderful web of connection in which we all live. Mm. And also the, the beauty of the world. You know, we get so caught up in our thoughts. I live here in Taos, New Mexico, and, uh, yeah, you know, it happens to everyone that we, um, that we get so caught up in our thoughts and worries and preoccupations that we drive past a, be a beautiful scene. You live in a beautiful place, too, in the Pacific Northwest. And how, you know, oftentimes we've moved to a place like that for the beauty, but then, then we'll find ourselves at times not seeing it because we're so caught up in what's happening in our imagination in our imaginary mind of difficulty <laughs> you yes. know because the present moment doesn't unless there's an active problem in the present moment there's no problem most present moments are just fine you know we have to there's days where nothing happens that's actually bad in any present moment and to you know in our society to us as individuals certainly and mm -hmm. um and yet, how many days do we not find a reason to suffer over something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think I talked to you about this when, <clears throat> when we were in Santa Fe. Uh, it was like, yeah, New Mexico is really beautiful and, and just the landscape is very stark and there's lots of art everywhere and lots of artists. I, you know, and it's, it's sort of like a... <clears throat> this grass is greener mentality, right? Like, oh, somewhere right. else is really wonderful and beautiful. Mm. And it is wonderful and beautiful, but also we, you know, we can fall into that habit of, of forgetting that there's, there's beauty just where we are. And yeah, like the sure. Pacific Northwest is, it's a spectacular place. And uh, there's, there's beauty all around me all the time. <laughs> Uh, yeah. doing better at, at acknowledging that and being present to it and really mm. appreciating that. Um, mm. But it is very, uh, it can be challenging, I think, to begin to just realize that like the grass is green right where you're standing. Right, right. And oh. uh, yeah, the, the world is full of beauty. It's, and that's, it's an important food for our souls to experience that. Uh, in fact, I consider that one of the spiritual dimensions of life as well, just to appreciate beauty. Yeah. Just to, just to be able to um, 
feed our souls in that way, remind ourselves that that there's there's beauty everywhere. You know, if um, you know, in theistic terms, you could call that a gift from God. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more that Sean and I talked about in regards to writing and spiritual companionship in the context of meditation, and I will release that part of the conversation next week. Did you know that SDI has its own YouTube channel? Well, it does. If you go to youtube.com and search for SDI World, you'll find our YouTube channel, which has several videos on spiritual companionship, and recordings of our previous digital town halls and gatherings that we've been doing over the past few months. I invite you to check them out. They are free uh, and uh, hopefully will uh, offer you some nourishment uh, during this season. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word, about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. To learn more about spiritual companionship and ways that you can plug in and join our community, visit us at our website at www.sdiworld.org.